0: Today's episode is all about how to create deep and permanent life change through memory transformation, including changing your childhood memories.
1: We are changing the unconscious memory. So you still consciously know what happened. So I can tell you, for example, when I think of my childhood now, it's filled with love and kindness and compassion and fun and freedom. But I can also still tell you what originally happened. So I still have that declarative memory, but the new childhood is the information that the unconscious part of my brain is referring to as fact. In addition to that, let's say my parents say to me, oh no, that actually never happened. It doesn't matter because if I remember it happening, even if it's a false memory, it might as well have happened because the unconscious part of the brain can't tell the difference between a false memory and the real thing that happened. So if you've got any negative memories at all even if they're not true change them that's why changing memories is effective because the unconscious part of the brain doesn't know that the new memories aren't true turn up your frequency with mind love bite-sized
0: brain hacks for seekers dreamers and doers it's time to give your mind a little love with your host melissa monte If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win, because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Do you ever feel like you just attract pain and struggle? Maybe you keep experiencing the same struggle over and over again, the same type of partner, the same financial struggles, the same triggers, or maybe you don't see a pattern at all. You just feel stuck in a rut of bad experiences. Whatever it is, you're not alone. If you've been listening to Mind Love for a while, you've probably heard expert after expert talk about the power of our subconscious minds. It's the part of the mind that we're not consciously aware of, but it is responsible for our automatic behaviors and reactions. It's the storehouse of all of our memories, beliefs, and habits. Which is why you can't just override your habits and beliefs with willpower. What most people don't realize is that your implicit memories are what form the foundation of your unconscious mind. And those implicit memories take root during childhood. So whereas explicit memories are the memories that you can consciously recall, they're the memories that you can talk about, they're the memories that you can put into words, implicit memories are the memories that you can't consciously recall. And they're actually stored in your brain differently than your explicit memories because they're stored in your emotional brain or your limbic system, the part of your brain that controls your emotions, your behaviors, and your survival instincts. And it's also the part of your brain that's responsible for your fight or flight response, which is why they affect our patterns of reactions and what we move toward or away from in life. So this means that your childhood experience shape the rest of your life, unless you choose to consciously rewire your mind. If you want to break the cycle of pain and struggle, you have to become aware of the patterns that are holding you back. And once you're aware of the patterns, you can start to change them. If your childhood was traumatic, the idea that this traumatic childhood can shape the rest of your life can either feel like a life sentence or a glimmer of hope. And honestly, it'll probably feel like a little of both depending on where you are in your journey. But focus on the good news, which is what we will learn in this episode, that you can rewire your subconscious mind so that the trauma that you've gone through stops holding you back. And if you did not have a traumatic childhood, Don't tune out just yet, because trauma isn't always what we think it is. It doesn't always take abuse or neglect to create these types of deep-rooted beliefs in your mind. Implicit memories can include anything from the way you were raised, to the way you were treated by your parents, to the way you were treated by your peers. Maybe your mom and dad were always watching TV and weren't very attentive or available. Maybe you were called fat or ugly in school. Maybe you saw your parents struggling with money. Or maybe they just chose words like, we can't afford that. Maybe your parents divorced and you overheard them arguing. All of these things can shape what we believe about the world, what we believe about relationships and money and ourselves. And these memories can shape the way you see yourself, the way you see others, and the way you see the world. But here's the light at the end of the tunnel. In order to rewire your brain the fastest, you can actually go back and change your childhood memories. And don't worry, we won't be wiping the actual events from your mind, but you will be able to change the autonomic responses that these memories have had by reliving a new experience. And today, we'll be learning the exact process to do that with step-by-step techniques that you can learn to change your subconscious memories and heal from the negativity of your past. Our guest is Odile Remert. She's a mindset coach specializing in emotions and the subconscious, and she's also the author of Change What Happened to You. After successfully transforming her life by changing her own negative childhood memories, she created the Remert Method to empower others to create deep and permanent life changes through memory transformation. So three key things we will learn are why we can't think logically when we're dealing with intense negative emotions. How to identify which implicit memories are affecting your present, and a unique, proven memory editing process that has the power to change your mind, behavior, and happiness. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family, or you have a work deadline, or something unexpected comes up, and you're all stressed out, and it feels like all the work is out the window. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Odile Remmert to the show.
1: Thank you, Melissa. It's fabulous to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So what inspired your work in changing childhood memories?
1: Well, toward the end of 2015, at 51 years old, um, after a lifetime of uh, emotional, physical, and financial struggle, and trying everything and not finding anything that worked, I was divorced, depressed, uh, renting a room in a shared house in England, and cleaning other people's houses and unable to pay my bills. I also had fibromyalgia and IBS. And a few months later, during 2016, not only was I healthier and happier and able to pay my bills, but I was also traveling internationally. And in 2017, I met the love of my life and married him. And I now live in America where I've always wanted to live. And uh, in 2019, I ended up owning three of the rental properties I used to clean back in 2015. And the there are three main keys that I found based in neuroscience that helped me make that change, that, you know, turn my life around completely. And I am very passionate, but passionate that everyone should know them. So I'm very excited to be sharing those with you today.
0: One of the first intriguing parts of your book that really caught my attention was how you talked about we have these different basically brain modes and you said that if somebody doesn't have this instinctual desire for altruism or helping others it's an indicator that their brain is still in survival mode can you elaborate on that because i want to get some basis of how our brain works before we get into how
1: to sort of change these memories for ourselves Absolutely, yes. <laughs> the unconscious part of the brain's main uh, priority, top priority, is survival. So that's that's its main job is to keep us alive. And in order to keep us alive, the main thing, of course, is surviving any immediate physical danger. Because, of course, if we're not alive, uh, nothing else matters. So our top priority is survival. But right under that, the second priority is connection, altruism, helping others. And that's also survival, but it's long-term survival. So we need to survive immediately and then we want to survive sort of on an ongoing basis. So the the way that works is the survival mechanism is stress chemicals. And well, stress chemicals puts us into that state of fight, freeze, flight. And so if we're faced with a bear, the brain produces uh, stress chemicals that cause the brain and body to go into that state of emergency and when we come out of it, uh, the stress chemicals lower and we go back to normal. However, <laughs> the challenge is that the brain can't tell the difference between an immediate physical threat and an emotional suffering or betrayal or fear, uh, anxiety, that kind of thing. So, as we all negative emotions are a level of the fight, freeze, flight, emergency state. So, when we feel sadness, anger, frustration, worry, guilt, all of those negative emotions they're caused by the same stress chemicals that would be produced if we were in physical danger now when we uh, so so let's say somebody's really successful they've got everything they want they've got uh, a successful life and um or certainly to everybody else that they look successful and happy if they aren't reaching out and helping others and connecting and being kind and compassionate it's because despite the, uh, the circumstances, their brain is still referring to references from childhood that they are not loved and they are not safe. And it's producing those stress chemicals, which is affecting their decisions.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I know for me, one of the biggest changes I am, have been able to make in my life and my relationships is when I feel overwhelmed I know that I need to take a step back to kind of recoup and and think, okay, I need to let this intense emotional energy sort of dissipate before I can actually come back and even see the problem clearly. And I know that that even goes back to what's happening in our mind. Why is it that we can't think clearly when we have these intense negative emotions?
1: Oh, excellent question. <laughs> yes. So um, one of the effects of stress chemicals in the system, so adrenaline, cortisol, um, is that blood drains from the prefrontal cortex of the brain where we do our cognitive thinking. So strategizing, communicating, uh, problem solving, comprehending, all of that. Uh, it, the blood drains from that part of the brain to the back of the brain for, to, to create that fight, freeze, flight state. So that means that whenever we're feeling a negative emotion, we literally can't think straight because there's no, the blood is not in that part of the brain. So we don't have access to our cognitive thinking. And that's why you, you probably have found that when you're in a situation where you're triggered by someone, it's only later that you think of all the things you could have said or you, would have, you, you, you should have said. And that's because later when the st- level of stress chemicals came down, blood returned to that part of your brain, the cognitive thinking part of your brain, and then you were able to access your cognitive thinking and think of all those things.
0: Yeah, that happens all the time. (laughs) 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 I'm like, I should have. It's actually might be for the best because I I then think, well, instead I got to sort of harness my Zen and sit there quietly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So... These two things combined, on one hand, we feel intense negative emotions and we're not able to think clearly. And on the other hand, we're basically sort of imprisoned by things that happened in childhood that we interpreted with our very undeveloped childhood brains. And now those sort of live in our bodies and cause instinctual responses. And so combined, it's like we're, we're all adults acting irrationally. Based on our own unique specific triggers,
1: is that right? Uh, yes. basically, the um from birth, those references from experiences are filed uh, as implicit memory or unconscious memory. Memories are stored throughout the brain. They're not stored in a particular place in the brain. And as we recall a memory, the memories pull together in that moment like the jigsaw puzzle. And in every moment, the brain is referring to previous experiences and mostly from childhood, that determine our self-image and worldview in order to know how to what something means and how to respond to it. So, as an adult, we go about our day and we encounter um, other people or circumstances, events, that kind of thing, and the brain is constantly referring to childhood to determine what it means and how to respond. And the key here is that the response happens before we become consciously aware of it. So the chemical response happens first, we feel the effects of that chemical response physically, and then the conscious mind interprets those sensations as an emotion and we we continue to react consciously then.
0: So for a lot of people, they might not be able to remember maybe some deep childhood trauma. Are those things still affecting them if they're they're not one of the people that's like, oh, well, I grew up in an abusive family or abused or all of these big things that we think of when we think of childhood trauma. Are those the only things that affect our implicit memories or can it be something more mundane? risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com/slash mindlove. That's drink drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. all of these big things that we think of when we think of childhood trauma, are those the only things that affect our implicit memories or can it be something more mundane?
1: Absolutely. So people, as you say, people think of trauma as abuse and neglect and that kind of thing, but something as simple as, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, but something as simple as the silent treatment So if you had a parent who just didn't know how to handle their emotions and so they would just go silent, that can impact the brain, the child's brain. One of the questions I ask clients when they say, well, I, I had a great childhood. I knew I was loved and, you know, nothing bad happened. My question to them is, how were you punished when you did something wrong? And, uh, you know, because that can also impact the brain. And grief and loss, the loss of a pet, changing schools, parents divorcing, um, having to move house. Uh, there's there's a lot of things that, like you say, could be seen as mundane, but that has have impacted the unconscious part of the brain because the unconscious part of the brain cannot use logic or reason so we may consciously understand what happened or understand that it wasn't um it wasn't a bad it wasn't that bad but the unconscious part of the brain has no ability to do that it's just staying in it it's it's priority is survival
0: it's funny because i was just recently having a conversation with my mom and i am such an analyzer like i love this type of Information, and so I'm constantly reading new books and kind of figuring things out and making connections. And I know that sometimes it can be difficult for her because I know she did the best that she could and was a very loving mother. I was very lucky in so many ways, but there were a lot of things. My parents were divorced when I was basically an infant. We lived with my grandparents, then we moved and then I moved schools like four different times and <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of moving, and I think I handled it well, but it's one of the things that I tie back to maybe an inherent loneliness or not expecting people to be around often. And we were just talking the other day and she was just saying, you know, I just don't, I look back at your childhood and you were so happy and, and all of these things that kind of justify it. And in that moment was able to sort of sense, I'm like, oh, maybe it's unfair or harsh for me to say these things, because it does feel like blame to a good parent, you know, (laughs) like to a parent who who showed up and gave all the love that they could give. And so, but what I'm hearing is that even if a child is happy, and you can't tell that they're being affected much even in those moments, those things can still carry on with them later on in life.
1: Absolutely. And it's important with to realize as well that this is not about blame. One way or another, you know, it's not about being blamed as a parent or us blaming our parents. Every person, every individual is always doing the best they they can with what they have. Uh, as a parent, your parenting skills, our parenting skills as parents are based on our own childhood experiences and the the resulting references from those. And the same goes for our parents so, the combination of knowing that everybody's always doing the best they can and it's based on their child, if they'd had different childhoods, they would have been different people and different parents. Uh, and that doesn't excuse them, of course. You know, nothing, um, all children should be treated with love and kindness and respect and compassion and feel safe. But it does help to empower us to know, well, if they had had different childhoods, they would have been different. And therefore, I can change my experiences my childhood, unconscious childhood memories by changing their childhood memories. And as uh, as far as our parents do, go, uh, you know, for, for example, your mum, it may be that when you say, when you mention those things to her, there may be guilt there. And so it, you know, as a parent, it's natural to feel guilty. So it's understanding that you're not blaming her, and it's just a cause and effect. And like you say, it doesn't need to be intentional so your parents got divorced that's not you know it's, it's not intentional it's not abuse or anything like that it's it's cause and effect in the same way if someone dies you know that's life that that happens but it does still impact us
0: and so do we need to know the specifics of how we're being impacted now and what may have impacted us? Because I know so many people who are just like, I don't know, I've got these patterns in my life. Maybe they're not even aware of the patterns in their life that they're trying to fix. And like, I don't know, like you said, a lot of people look back and they're like, well, I have a great childhood. And and you have that specific question about, well, how are you punished? So how do we start to make the links of what things may have affected us or is that even necessary in order to do this work? I would assume it would be since we're trying to change some of those memories.
1: It's different for different people, but for most people to start with, you start with what do you wish was different in your life? And particularly if you've been trying to change something either about yourself or about your life, and you haven't been able to do it for whatever reason. We've got three detective questions that you ask. So the first question is, how do I know? So how do I know this is a problem? Or what's the worst thing about it? The second question is, how does that feel? And then the third question is, where did I feel that same feeling in my childhood? It may be a different topic, but it'll be the same feeling. So to give you an example from my own life, when I was addressing the, my financial issues, the first question, how do I know, how do I know this? it's a problem, uh, was, well, because I can't pay my bills. The second question was, how does that feel? And it would feel different for different people. For me, it felt like they want something of me and I don't have it to give them. And then the third question, where did I feel that same feeling in my childhood was my entire childhood. And it had nothing to do with money. It was about expectations. So it was, they wanted me to be something that I couldn't be. And it was the same feeling and so you can find specific memories that are that are creating the same recurring patterns in your life now. Now, if you can't think of any memories, if you think, well, like, you know, so there are people who go, well, I can't think of anything. Uh, I can't think of any experiences in my childhood where I felt that, or I don't have many memories at all. That's okay. You start from scratch. And so the end result we want to end up with is the ideal childhood. So you want to, so this is like changing the coordinates in your GPS. If you were driving somewhere, you want to change the GPS coordinates from where you are now to match the destination you want to get to. So you want to create a child, so implicit childhood memories are the brain's GPS. So you want to create a new childhood that supports whatever you want in your life now. So a childhood filled with love and kindness and compassion and feeling safe and abundance and freedom, and fun, and all of that. And we have six bookmark memories that can help uh, sort of guide you. So, um, and I can share, they're in the book, but I I also have them, we have them on our website as well. And those bookmark memories, you can create those six bookmark memories. As you go through each one, if if you can create them, fantastic. If you can't, if you have uh, you may find that other memories come up to that uh, um, contradict them, then you can change those that pop up.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Actually, I, I feel like I almost had a realization while you were talking and, and asking those questions, and I was sort of reflecting on my own. And I've always gone back to the loneliness that I've just always sort of felt, being an only child, moving a lot. But I think part of it is that... It's less the loneliness and more of a. I always kind of felt misunderstood, like I was an outcast, like I was outside of everything else. And I think it was because of sort of different family units. Like my family unit wasn't really there as far as my memory was. I lived with my grandparents, and then, you know, we'd get together, and my cousins would come over, but they'd always leave with siblings and they're both of their parents. And then it was just me and my mom. And then my mom got remarried to the best guy ever. He's Basically, he is a father to me, and and yes, I had a family there, but I remember because of religious beliefs and things like that of my family, there's the belief that marriage comes first, then children come second, and as a married woman now, I can look back in that and, and say like, yes, there's, there's objective truth in that. However, when you're bringing a child from another marriage, and then all of a sudden, it was like me and my mom against the world, and then having thinking that God says, well, now their relationship comes first. And then my two stepbrothers had each other. I I just remember feeling like I was outside of anything really, really stable, even though, yes, I was very much in that family, if that makes sense. And the, I, I don't know if I've ever put that together, but your question sort of helped me bring that into the light because that is that is still how I feel. It's still why I moved a lot in my 20s. And, and I have been reworking. I've been working on rewiring this pattern of like, even with longer friendships, when the friendship gets really deep, I start to have these feelings that it'll be over soon, <laughs> or, or, you know, maybe they don't like me anymore, or something like that, like, just kind of get hypersensitive about things. I even just visited a friend and when I was on the plane. I noticed that feeling. I was like, I hope I didn't do or say anything that makes her never want me to visit again. And I'm like, wow, where is this coming from? And I'm aware enough now to bring sort of light to it and and try to melt away those feelings, but it's definitely something I'm struggling with. So I'm excited to use some of your techniques to figure out how I can rewire that. Mm -hmm. So, because it's, it's kind of at this point in, because of the combination of awareness and that's still
1: affecting me it's almost just annoying <laughs> so <laughs> so how do we start okay so first of all i want to say that well done for that. That that makes perfect sense. What you described there of your childhood and what you experience now that makes perfect sense as a link. And so, what you want to I always like to start with what you want to end up with, so you know, you know, we know where where we're going. And so, the end result you want is that you were uh, now. Before I say this, it's important to remember that the brain can't use logical reason and can't judge something as unrealistic. So we can we can create different data. That to the conscious mind is contradicting, but the unconscious part of the brain won't uh, won't object to it unless it's got other memories that prove it. So the end result you want to end up with is that you, uh, your parents never got divorced. You grew up with both parents and they were completely dedicated to you. They were in love with each other and completely dedicated to you. So you always, so you can create memories of, well, those six bookmark memories you can create definitely with your parents then you can also create memory, and so you were still an only child, you can also create memories where you had one or more siblings, whatever you would have liked, and how that would have been. So you can create those memories with both your parents again. You can also then, in addition to that, create memories with your stepfather as your as your biological father. In other words, he was there all along. So whatever helps to create that feeling of connection, inclusion and safety with two parents does that make sense so far it does
0: and so if somebody's following along with this like you said there's multiple options that could create that safety do we just sort of envision each one and decide which one feels the best to us in order to figure out what that ideal memory recreation is that we are going to be personally going for create that safety. Do we just sort of envision each one and decide which one feels the best to us in order to figure out what that ideal memory recreation is that we are going to be personally going for?
1: We use uh, what 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 I call stepping stone memories. So I'm going to use uh, the example of being bullied in school because it's a really easy one to to show as an example. So it, let's say um, a person. I, let's say I was bullied in school, and when I told my parents, they didn't believe me. So there's there's several pieces of data going on there. So the first thing is the original bullying incident. There's a the piece where no one protected me, there's a piece where I couldn't stand up for myself, and there's a piece where I wasn't believed. Now the end result we wanna end up with is always the ideal. So your end result would be both parents and you were completely safe and they stayed together and your life was perfect with both of them, very engaged. Uh, For the bullying incident you wanna end up with, instead of being bullied, you were the most popular kid in school and everyone wanted to be your friend and uh, you were top of the class and all of that. But if we just did that, there would be the other pieces of data that hadn't been addressed. So the brain would have the reference for that end result, but it would still be referring to the fact that we, were, uh, we weren't believed and referring to the fact that no one stood up for us and referring to the fact that um, I couldn't stand up for myself. So we start with the stepping stone memory. So as we look at the the memory, go, what stands out as the problems here, the worst things about it? And if I could wave a magic wand, what would I do? So in with a bullying memory, we... Put in first of all that the parents believed me. So I, I was bullied. I went home. I told my parents, and they were horrified and they hugged me. And they said, This is absolutely unacceptable. They went to the school. The kids that bullied me were um, expelled or arrested, whatever would make you feel good and safe. Then, so you create that memory, you play it three times in a row, and allowing yourself to feel the good feelings of that, how, how safe that feels. Then you go on to the second stepping stone, which would be I had the ability to stand up for myself, either verbally or physically or both. So the bullying starts to happen and I'm able to be, uh, I, I grow bigger or I've I've done judo or karate or whatever, or I've got a magic wand, something like that. In addition to that, you want a memory where someone else stood up for you. So this, uh, this message to the, the unconscious part of the brain is I'm worth Standing up for, and someone's always got my back, I'm safe, those kinds of things. And then you do the final memory where the bullying never happened at all, and instead you were the most popular kid in school.
0: Okay, so I can see how you're sort of working up because if you go to stepping stone number three right away, it might feel so foreign in our bodies that we're automatically resisting it. And so once we go through that process, are we just good or do we have to repeat that for a certain amount of times or for a certain length of time period until it starts to rewire those default patterns? How f- Basically, how fast does this happen?
1: Good question. And it doesn't need to take long. The, how long it takes will depend on the individual, the memory, and what kind of s- emotional state you're in at the time. But to give an idea, the stepping stones, um, I would say just practice them three times in a row, and then move on to the next one, and move on to the next one. And when you get to the final memory, which would be the ideal, you practice that three times in a row at first, allowing yourself to feel the feelings, and then several times a day, whenever you, you know, as much as you can. What's happening physiologically in the brain when you do that is, so thoughts are connections between neurons in, in the in the neocortex. So as you think of that new memory, Neurons are connecting and triggering feel-good chemicals. You want to amp up those feel-good chemicals. The stronger the feelings are, the more the brain will prioritize it for long-term memory. And a piece that um, helps with that process is adrenaline. So when a memory, when it, when an experience is accompanied by adrenaline the brain will prioritize that for long-term storage. So that's why we tend to remember bad stuff more than we remember good stuff because that's, again, survival. It's important to remember not to go near that tree where the bear attacked us. (laughs) So what we do with the feel-good memories is we inject excitement, joy. So you want to amp up the the feel-good feeling. So instead of just, I wasn't bullied, I want to make sure... I was the most popular kid in school and everybody loved me. And that injects a little bit of adrenaline and dopamine and signals the brain to for long-term storage of that memory. So you practice it until it feels established. And that, as I say, is going to vary from person to person. But if you think of how many times do I need to repeat a new phone number before it becomes my phone number, as opposed to, you know, replaces the old one, that can kind of give an idea. I know you teach about emotional state conditioning and i feel like that's Im- important
0: because i've spoken with a lot of people where you know we might be going over mindset shifts or whatever and the response is that well all of this just takes so much work like living intentionally it <laughs> takes so much work especially if you're used to living the way the average person does which is basically on autopilot you know you just are going about right. your day and so when you start to bring intention into it and you start to try to rewire certain things, it's like, but how do I know how many things in my life are affected by childhood memories? How many things will I have to do this for? Like, it's just too exhausting. And so by doing this over and over again, it, is it sustainable, basically, to to be able to rewire something? Or have you found that... that I guess it would depend how many of your past things are affecting your future. And since mundane sort of things can, how many things affect people on average? How many things do people have to go back and change usually? Or does it seem like there's usually just a couple of big things in the average person?
1: Well, this is so, uh, you know, it really varies hugely from person to person. But the way to think of it, again, is like a So if you're driving somewhere, you want to drive to the beach and you find you're not at the beach. So let's say you're going to you're driving along and you feel like no, this isn't the beach. This is this is the wrong way. This is I'm not going anywhere near the beach. You would check your GPS and you would check that you've got the beach, (laughs) you know, programmed into the beach GPS. And if it was the city, then you would. Just, you know, change those coordinates and then set off again. And if you find you're going a different route again, you go, hold on a minute, there's something wrong here. I need to check the GPS again. So that's what we do with the childhood memories. And you can see very quick results, um, but it doesn't mean that, uh, that that, you know, you change one memory or a couple of memories and your life is perfect. It's about checking, you know, okay, am I, am I getting the results I want? If not, how do I know? How does it feel? Where in my childhood did I feel that feeling? And doing the, you know, practicing the new childhood memories or changing those, child, those negative ones and then staying on the road. And the staying on the road bit is part of understanding that it's easier to feel bad than to feel good. And that's because stress chemicals are stronger than feel-good chemicals. Because they're for survival. So it is uh, using zero tolerance, which means as soon as you start to feel anything negative, you know, a little bit of worry, a little bit of frustration, become aware of it and address it in the moment and answer it straight away. So you're not going to deny it or push it away or anything. Uh, Acknowledge it answer it and then change your focus so that you change your brain chemistry. And I can take you all through, shall I take you all through that little brain chemistry exercise? Definitely. All right. So this is a little exercise and it takes, you know, a minute, uh, if that. And do, practicing this over and over will help to uh, develop the skill and condition your brain and body to produce lower levels of stress chemicals, higher levels of feel-good chemicals, and also gives you a technique you can use when you s- start to feel a little triggered. So before we go into it, you may have heard of Dr. Jill Bolter-Taylor. She wrote the book, My Stroke of Insight and she's she's done TED Talks and things, and she has a thing that she calls the 90-second rule. And the idea behind it is that it takes just 60 to 90 seconds to change your brain and body chemistry from stress chemicals to feel-good chemicals if you keep your focus off the negative for that 60 to 90 seconds. Of course, what happens is we feel a negative emotion, then we think about the negative emotion and the reasons for it and so on and every connection between neurons as we are thinking you know, every thought is restarting that 60 to 90 second clock. So this little exercise helps you to spend that 60 to 90 seconds with your focus on um, with those connections creating feel good chemicals instead. So for this little exercise, you'll need what we call a subject. So it can be a person or an animal that you love, but with no negative uh, attachments. So no guilt or longing or missing or um, anything like that. So just love. If you can't think of a person, so it could be a pet or it could be an animal that's not your pet, but you think they're cute like elephants. If you can't think of a person or an animal, you can use um, a place like Hawaii or you know, the mountains, or you can use an activity like surfing or gardening. So if you've got something, we can start now. I do. Good. So take a deep breath, close your eyes. And I want you to start by thinking of your favourite colour. And if you don't have a favourite, just pick one you like. And imagine being surrounded by that beautiful colour. And notice the feeling of that colour. Very good. And now I want you to think of that subject, that person, animal, place or activity that you love and imagine holding them in your arms in a hug and notice the feeling, the physical feeling you have in your chest or solar plexus. And now imagine that feeling as a ball of light or energy and imagine it spreading down to your toes, up to the top of your head, and out to your fingertips, so you're now full of that light, that energy, that love. Now imagine that light or energy radiating out from you and filling the whole room you're in. And you can open your eyes. And how do you feel, Melissa? Melissa?
0: Radiant. <laughs>
1: good. Good. I was tired before, but now suddenly I have a little wow. bit more energy. So that is, so what we did there was literally changing brain chemistry. So when we think of something we're worried about, or, you know, we uh, think of something that happened that we we feel frustrated about, or we regret any, all those negative thoughts are connections between neurons and those connections create stress chemicals. So they pump stress chemicals like adrenaline and cortisol into our system. As we start to think about something we love. So starting with the color, the reason we start with your favorite color and being surrounded by it is because usually there's no, not much objection to that because it's, you know, there's no, uh, usually there's nothing, no attachment to it. So you think of that first and that helps to start bringing the stress chemicals down. Then as you think of hugging your subject and the light and all of that, every connection between neurons as you're going through that process is starting to produce endorphin serotonin oxytocin. And that creates the change in how you feel. It also brings the blood back to your prefrontal cortex.
0: Wow. So I have, I love the kind of addition of the color in there because that makes a lot of sense to me. Whereas I've used that method of changing my internal state when I'm in a in a negative emotion, I have a few specific memories that can always change the way my energy feels. My first kiss with my husband, which I know is super cheesy, but it was just so Aww. magical. And <laughs> and then like the first time holding my baby, but now it's kind of replaced by whenever my toddler runs towards me, like after I have childcare or something, smiling. ah, oh, it just gets me every time. But I can see how there's been times where I've been so wrapped in the negative emotion that I'll go and try to do the process and I can feel myself resisting it. It's like, nope, right. you need to sit here longer. Because <laughs> yeah. what is it about, why do we think that sitting in that negative emotion is gonna feel better? It's like, we wanna play sad music and we wanna keep talking about it or gossiping about the thing that pissed us off. <laughs> and so it's like my mind is trying to tell me, no, stay here. And so that that thinking of the color is a really great neutral way to sort of flip that switch because there's no
1: resistance to it. That's it. And the reason we are, we feel compelled to continue focusing on the negative is because that's the survival mechanism. So that's the brain going, no, but there's this danger here. And if you don't pay attention to it, you'll die. <laughs> so it can't tell the difference between uh, you know, somebody who betrayed us or, you know, worries about finances or whatever, and a bear. So it's more important to keep your focus on the wild animal that's going to attack you than on the pretty flowers. So that's why we have that compulsion. And it feels such a strong pull to watch the news and to talk about the, the negative stuff, because we get a uh, we get a feeling of safety or it's an urgency, that kind of thing for survival. And so doing this little exercise intentionally when we're not triggered, that's the that's the very important part of this. So it's like if you need if you're going to run a marathon, you wouldn't be able to get off the couch having never run before and run a marathon. You want to start running a little bit up and down the street and around the block and so on and build that stamina and those muscles. And this is and, and the same if you were to um play, you know, play a concert and a musical instrument at a concert, you wouldn't wait until the night of the concert, you would want to practice that (laughs) instrument before then. And this is the same. So you want to practice this little technique, use this little technique all the time. So first thing in the morning, last thing at night, several times throughout the day, you can see it doesn't take long because every time you do it, you're training your brain and body, you're developing the skill so that then when you are triggered, it's going to be easier to use it because you will have already built up that stamp, that emotional stamina.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And so is there anything we need to watch for certain memories that we should not be doing this technique with? I know a lot of times what comes up with people is, is you know, they're told, well, super traumatic things you want to have a trained professional with you before you go and and start to try to get close to them or rewire them on your own. Do we have to be careful about sort of re-traumatizing ourselves in some way by this intention to rewire something really big? Should we be keeping it with the lighter things? Is it something we work up to? What do we need to know?
1: Very good question. And so we recommend not addressing trauma on your own because it's so easy to get lost in it. And as you say, re-traumatize yourself. So we always recommend getting help from a professional therapist or um, practitioner to, to to address any trauma. Now, trauma is of course different for different people. So for one person, a particular event may be very traumatic. And for another person, they may not have the same effect from it. So the the way to notice is when you think of the negative memory, if on a scale of zero to 10, how, you know, if we say how strong are the negative emotions zero to 10, where zero is, I don't feel anything, 10 is very strong. If it's an eight or higher, get help with it. If it's lower than an eight, you can probably address it on your own, but make sure that you use the this little brain chemistry exercise, which is part of the, the, um, the process for bringing down the emotions to change the memory. Stay in that feel good state with the color and your subject much, much longer than you spend in the memory. So you wanna stay in, you know, focusing on the color and hugging your subject, and then just dip your toe into the negative memory. Notice how strong the emotions are, just literally for a couple of seconds, and then immediately press pause and go back to the feel good so that you're keeping your system topped up with feel good chemicals. Because as you think of the negative memory, those connections between neurons start to produce the stress chemicals that cause the negative emotions. And you don't want to keep that running for long. So it's very, because they're stronger. So just notice it. It's a, you know, it's a six. Okay. Press pause on that and go back to the feel good, the color hugging your subject, spend time in that until it feels really good. Then dip your toe into the, the negative memory again and so on so that you're, you're keeping yourself in that feel good state.
0: We touched on this a little bit earlier on, but what if, we can't remember a whole lot of our childhood. And I wanna answer this question on both the, you know, somebody who doesn't think about their childhood much, so they just don't have a lot of memories that come top of mind. And also what if somebody has repressed certain childhood memories? Is the fact that it's been repressed, should that be an indicator that it was traumatic
1: enough on its own? Possibly, so we don't like to do a lot of archeology span (laughs) work. We don't like to go around digging too much. And that's because, uh, again, as those neurons connect, they produce stress chemicals. So if you can't remember much of your childhood, start by creating brand new memories of the ideal childhood. And then you may find you start to remember certain things. You know, you may have a memory pop up. If it does, then you can change that and you can move forward that way. If there are repressed memories. So what the brain is doing all the time is updating Uh, data memories without our knowledge so as you know we're going about our day as we have new experiences the brain is updating previous data and there's a wonderful example of this when i was writing our book the uh the first chapter where i was talking about um sitting in front of the brick wall in the car and my phone rang my phone was on the passenger seat and it rang and as i described that scene In my mind, I could see very clearly that scene. You know, I could remember it very clearly. My phone on the passenger seat on my right hand side ringing. And later on, when I went back and I was editing the book and I was rereading it, I thought, hold on a minute. The phone couldn't have been on my right. It had to have been on my left because I was in England. And so the driver's driver's seat is on the other side of the car. But my brain, because I've lived in America for five years now, my brain without my conscious knowledge had automatically updated just that piece. So it automatically updated, uh, put the the passenger seat on my right because that's where it is now. So the brain is already updating memories. So as we change, let's say the earliest memory I can remember of feeling that particular feeling was when I was... 20 years old, I can then change that memory. And as I change that, either my brain will automatically update any childhood memories, or I will suddenly remember a childhood memory. And then I can change that.
0: It's so amazing how the brain works. (laughs) It also makes me distrust (laughs) mine a little bit more. It's it's one of those things Mm. where it's like, I have this specific memory. It's funny because I have two stepbrothers and they weren't Always around. So I was an only child most of the time. And then sometimes I've had brothers. I don't know if that made it more difficult or easier for me, but <laughs> it's funny because they have specific memories that I just know weren't true. Mm-hmm. They each have their own. It's not like they have them together, too. Like wow. one of them will be like, that never happened. And they, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it never happened. And so it just goes to show you, though, like it depends on what you're going through at specific times. And your brain will encode information in very specific ways to what your personal experience was. And it can be wildly different than what it even was. And so I bring that up because somebody might be hearing something like, well, changing a memory, like, I want to remember things as they are. And it's like, you're already not remembering things as they are. (laughs) And you might be remembering things in a way that doesn't serve you at all. Your brain just thinks it does because of that survival mechanism.
1: Well, yes, Absolutely. And in addition to that, we we are changing the unconscious memory. So you still consciously know what happened. So I can tell you, for example, when I think of my childhood now, it's filled with love and kindness and compassion and fun and freedom and all kinds of wonderful things. I have some wonderful new memories, but I can also still tell you what originally happened. So I still have that declarative memory. So if I had to you know, give evidence in court or something, I could still tell you the original facts, but the new childhood is the um, information that the unconscious part of my brain is referring to as fact. In addition to that, a point I wanted to make as well is that even if something, let's say I remember something, or I think I remember something that happened, a negative thing, but then say my parents say to me, oh no, that actually never happened. It doesn't matter because if I remember it happening, even if it's a false memory, my brain is going, it might as well have happened because my brain is referring to it as facts. So the brain can't the sorry, the unconscious part of the brain can't tell the difference between a false memory and a real memory or a you know, real thing that happened. So if you've got any negative memories at all, even if they're not true, change them because the unconscious part of your brain doesn't know that. And that's, of course, why we can, not that's why changing memories is effective, because the unconscious part of the brain doesn't know that the new memories aren't true.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The last question I have around this is a lot of people's negative childhood memories include a family member or somebody that they still have to see regularly. Have you Ever heard of it happening where they somebody goes through this process, rewires something, produces a more positive outcome in their current life and then they go to a holiday party or something like that and there's something about being around their traumatizer that sort of re brings it back to the baseline of what it was before? Like do the do you hear of people needing to do the work again to get back there or is it something that tends to sort of stick after you do it? after you go through the
1: process thoroughly? So, and this, of course, depends on the person as well, it depends on how much they, you know, if they've still got um, other references there, but for the most part, it will stick. And certainly at the very least, they when they encounter that person, they're in a stronger state. They're able to, you know, they're, they're already... Uh, they've already got feel good chemicals in their system. And because they have the tools and techniques that we teach, as soon as they notice they're starting to feel triggered, they can do the work of the, the little superpower exercise that I took you through earlier, the brain chemistry exercise and playing a new childhood memory in that moment when they're dealing with that person.
0: Amazing. So I'm pretty sure we've touched on every step of this process but I know that you still have a freebie and a down something that they can download, get your book to help really ground all of this material into their lives so they can follow it step by step. There's parts of what we talked about that didn't necessarily retain. So for listeners that want to go deeper, where's the best place for them to connect with you?
1: Yes, indeed. So I'm very happy to offer free e ebook version, a PDF version of our book, Change What Happened to You. And you can get that by going to theremitmethod.com forward slash podcast gift or podcast, if I'm American, gift. <laughs> Somebody asked me the other day, what did you say? So it's the remit method, T H uh, E R E M M E R T method.com forward slash podcast gift. Um, and you can get the, the ebook there. And of course, we're we're on social media and on our website and on YouTube. And I love answering questions. So feel free to reach out to me with, with any questions.
0: All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 277. Your challenge for this week is to connect some of your negative memories with the beliefs you hold today. And to get clarity on these things, sometimes it's easier to go from past to present, and sometimes it's easier to go from present to past. There have been things that I've lived through where I've actually had to say to myself, this was big, and it was big enough that I know it affects my life, but I'm not exactly clear how. And sometimes it's just that thought, that intention, that allows things to unravel in the weeks or months or even years to come sometimes it's recognizing known patterns i remember hearing that people that were sexually assaulted have a higher chance of being affected by an eating disorder or people that have eating disorders have a high rate of a history of sexual assault so i had to put those two things together based on an outside perspective whereas I'm not sure I would have necessarily put that together on my own, but it does make sense. It's a way to take back control of your body in a weird way, as disconnected as that seems. But you can also work back through present-held beliefs or patterns, like maybe noticing, why have I always ended up in bad relationships? Or why have my past four boyfriends been basically the same guy in a different body? Or why do I have such a hard time holding on to money? Or whatever it is. Then set the intention to reflect on that. Or think back to what were the messages I heard about money growing up? Or what were the relationships that I witnessed in my life growing up? How did I see my parents interact? or my parents together? Did I see my mom dating? What else did I see? These are ways that we can start to identify the origins of our patterning, that might not be obvious to us in the beginning. So let me know how it goes and reach out if you need any help. You can always connect with me at mindlovemelissa on Instagram. So this week is really exciting because guess what? Mind Love Premium has an entire revamp. So those of you that are already Premium members, get excited because suddenly your membership has a whole lot more bonuses. We now have Mind Love Kits inside of the Mind Love Membership Nook. So every month there'll be a new little ritual kit. I'm still working on the namings of these. (laughs) A, A new little kit to help you become more intentional in your life. To work through some of the things that we talk about on the podcast and I'm bringing in guest experts with videos worksheets and bonus checklists and things like that so that you can actually get your hands in the material rather than just listening to it because it's one of the best ways to let it integrate into your life and actually apply the things that we're learning with actionable takeaways. So, if you have not joined Mindlove Premium yet, go to mindlove.com/premium and get in now. As these first few months go on, we will be repricing Mindlove Premium, and if you get in now, you will be grandfathered in with whatever price it's at at this given moment. So go to mindlove.com/premium. You can also find any of my sponsors at mindlove.com/sponsors, and if you'd like a free way to support, you can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or hey, even pod chaser if that's your thing. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week.
1: Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind
0: Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.